This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Today we have someone that's very well known in the world of yoga research, especially Dr. Satbir Singh Khalsa, who's going to talk to us today about elevating life's purpose and meaning the science and research on yoga for improving transcendence and spirituality. Thank you so much for being with us today, Satbir. Now, Dr. Singh Khalsa is the director of yoga research for the Yoga Alliance and the Kundalini Research Institute, which is a research, he's also a research associate at the Benson Henry Institute for Mind-Body Medicine. He's also a research affiliate at the Osher Center for Integrative Medicine and an associate professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School um, at Brigham and Women's Hospital. He's conducted research on yoga and yoga therapy since 2001 and has been a practitioner of Kundalini Yoga since 1973. Dr. Khalsa's research has evaluated yoga for insomnia, for chronic stress and anxiety-related disorders, in work in the workplace and in public school settings. He works with the um, International Association of Yoga Therapists, promoting yoga research as a scientific director for the annual symposium on yoga research, and as an editor-in-chief of the International Journal of Yoga Therapy. Dr. Khalsa is the medical editor of the Harvard Medical School Special Report Introduction to Yoga and chief editor of the medical textbook Principles and Practice of Yoga in Healthcare. Could not be more excited to have you with us today. And um, with that, I'm going to turn it over to you, Satbir. Great. Thank you very much for that uh, kind introduction. It's a pleasure to be here with you all. Um, and this is actually a topic that um, is of great interest to me, although I have to admit that um, I have not... Um, done a, a whole lot of research uh, in this area. So um, let's start actually with um, talking about, you know, yoga as a contemplative practice. And I think um, we need to first of all sort of come to a definition because a lot of people practice yoga and many people practice uh, it in a very different way. A significant fraction of the U.S. population, for example, practices just the postures and exercises and just the physical component, the exercise component, and they call that yoga. And that's fine, but it's really a limited form of yoga because traditional yoga has multiple components, not just the breathing, not just the postures and exercises, but also the breathing exercises or the pranayama, the deep relaxation practice, uh, and very importantly, uh, the meditative component of yoga practice. So my definition of yoga really encompasses uh, all of these. Now, many people, of course, can uh, adopt other things that can transition into a yoga lifestyle. But these four are sort of the basic components that uh, you see uh, in, in traditional yoga practices and classes, uh, as well as the research uh, that's been done on yoga. Now, there is a growing body of research uh, on yoga, on the basic mechanisms of how yoga works. And this, this is a logic model which really summarizes uh, what we know about um, all of these processes. So in the top box, uh, again, the, my definition is, is incorporating all four of these components, postures, breathing, relaxation, and meditation. Now, it's 
through all four of these components, either individually alone or together in traditional yoga, that we have uh, it, changes occur on the physical level. Obviously, the physical postures, the breathing techniques, um, these things will improve things like flexibility, strength, coordination, balance, respiratory function. And through the mind-body connection, we'll make changes in psychological self-efficacy. Now, it's all through, also through all four of these, um, and these four can act and, and do this independently, or you can put them together in yoga practice. We increase what we call self-regulation of internal state. Um, and the things that we're self-regulating most that, that have the most importance and impact are stress and emotion. And over time with practice, uh, this turns into the skills of resilience to, and tolerance to stress and emotional equanimity. And of course, that leads to an overall psychological self-efficacy. Now, it's largely through the meditative component of yoga uh, in which we are focusing our attention in the act of meditation that we increase our mind-body awareness. And a synonymous term for mind-body awareness is mindfulness, uh, which has become very, very popular uh, in the whole world of psychology. Um, and that increase in mindfulness, of course, the engagement of the attention networks improves your ability to attend, which means that you are improving your cognition and your concentration. And what you're really sort of focusing on um, is a target. And, and what happens other than that target, of course, is the intrusions of mind wandering. So as you practice these meditative practices over time, you develop uh, an improvement in your self-regulation of your attention. And ultimately, that leads to a state we call metacognition. And metacognition is associated with um, an experience which indicates that you are not your thoughts, that you have thought processes, but that's not who you are because you are something above those thought processes. And the, fact, and that, the evidence for that is that you end up with the ability through meditative practices to self-regulate some of those thought processes. You react differently to your stressful thoughts, to your emotional thoughts. Uh, in fact, you even have the capability of changing those thought processes. It's the realization um, that, that you are above your thought processes. And metacognition is very important. It's actually the main construct that underlies the most powerful and universally used form of psychotherapy today, which is cognitive behavioral therapy. Now, another component that um, typically experiences, uh, is experienced over a longer period of time, and again, through the meditative component primarily, is the induction of these uh, unitive states, these experiences of transcendence and flow, uh, which leads people to this sort of deeper transformation um, and a change in life meaning and purpose. Uh, people will alter their perception of who they are. They'll alter their life goals, typically in a positive direction, uh, typically from materialistic goals to more um, deeper um, spiritual type goals. And I'm, I'm calling this box uh, pure spirituality, if you will. Now, one thing with this model is that you can see we're making changes across a broad spectrum of human functioning, um, all the way from gross uh, level of uh, connective tissue and muscle to the deepest experiences that humans can have. And we have very strong objective research on the physical components. And over the past two decades, through studies on neuroimaging and um, behavioral studies and, and even molecular biological studies, we're coming to a deep understanding of the 
self-regulation processes that we have over our uh, internal state, both psychological and physiological, and the improvement in mindfulness or mind-body awareness. And the, the weak sister really in the field of uh, research supporting these is, is the spirituality. So there's much less research in this particular area. But because we're making this broad spectrum of changes, we see changes in global human functionality from the gross level, physical, mental health, and performance, to stress and emotion regulation, awareness, mindfulness, and metacognition, to the deepest experiences, um, which are associated with things like positive behavior changes, improvements in well-being, values, life purpose and meaning, and even what we can call pure uh, spirituality. Now, the arrows between these boxes are really there for a purpose because all of these things are interrelated. Uh, and this um, action of meditation in engaging the attention networks and getting away from the automatic behavior that occurs um, when we react to stress or emotions uh, automatically um, allows us the freedom to uh, experience perhaps these deeper uh, types of um, experiences. I see changes that occur uh, in yoga practice in sort of temporal domains. So over the short term, when you practice yoga, and this can be minutes or it can be certainly over a single yoga class, there's this sense of psychophysiological arousal reduction, which is associated with an improvement in physical and mental well-being. And, and this is typically associated with the down regulation of the stress and emotion response systems. And Herbert Benson, the meditation researcher, coined this um, as the relaxation response. It's the opposite of the fight or flight or the stress response. And of course, um, this is why people go to yoga class to sort of chill out and enjoy their evening afterwards. Now, as people practice, typically over the course of weeks and months regularly, that's when you see the development of these skills, of these behavioral changes. There's an improvement in mind-body awareness or mindfulness. There's an improvement in resilience and tolerance to stress and this overall self-regulation of both uh, psychological and physiological functioning. And this is why people continue to practice yoga because it empowers them, it gives them uh, this sense of self-efficacy. Now, as people typically practice now for a longer period of time and, and more regularly and perhaps even more intensively, and we're talking about months and years of practice, many practitioners report a psychological and philosophical transformation. Um, and they'll start to experience themselves in, in a different way. They'll start to view themselves in a different way. They'll start to view their um, their life goals, their, their, their uh, you know, their uh, work, um, their, uh, relationships, everything will start to be reevaluated with respect to this deep uh, uh, psychological or philosophical transformation. And where I think this comes from is the uh, is from these brief um, unitive experiences that 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 many people experience in meditation. Um, and these have been uh, well characterized historically in many different contemplative practices and and have been uh, referred to as mystical experiences. And this is a quote that, that I've heard many people say who have had long-term practice. They say, yoga changed my life. Now, it's, a, it's sort of a very simple, humble statement, but if you really consider this statement, it actually is quite profound. So they're not saying, oh, yoga fixed my headaches, or I'm less stressed, or you know, I'm more flexible, I'm you know, more calm. No, yoga changed my life. 
So this is really referring to this sort of a deeper transformation that has occurred, uh, presumably through, through the experiences of these uh, unitive states of consciousness. And now historically, we know that yoga actually was um, a form of uh, practice which was intended to lead to these spiritual experiences. Um, and Sri Aurobindo, one of the great writers on yoga, said, yoga is a methodized effort towards self-perfection by the expression of secret potentialities latent in the being, a union of the human individual with the universal and transcendent existence. And of course, the word yoga means union. And when we talk about the eight limbs of yoga, we talk about the last limb being samadhi, or this um, immersion in this universal transcendental consciousness. So this cartoon reads the opposite. I cannot continue this charade any longer. No more sun salutation, chakra shlakra. I will become an executive vice president of marketing. So this is a yoga teacher in midlife crisis. So what are these uh, contemplative states um, that, that, you know, these mystical experiences uh, as so-called? Um, and this is a good definition. Um, they are transient states of consciousness, usually lasting for only a few minutes and distinctly different from normal consciousness. The person typically experiences them passively, not a product of personal will or control, and has a difficult time expressing the experience in words. They usually are intensely positive, joyful experiences, and often the person senses the presence of an awe-inspiring transcendent other. Often there is a noetic element of revelation, a sudden knowing of a new truth. An experience of unity is common. For an example, an ineffable oneness with all of humankind, with nature or, a uni or the universe. And, and this experience is really sort of digitally different than everyday experience. So it is really a very profound, deep experience that is very, very different from everyday experiences. Now, terms for this are numerous. Um, and there's terms from uh, Oriental religions that refer to this state. In yoga, we have the term samadhi. Um, and uh, the more psychological terms that that are addressing uh, these experiences are things like the mystical state, the unitive state, enlightenment, um, kundalini awakening, spiritual awakening, transcendence, the peak experience, cosmic consciousness, uh, universal consciousness, and noetic experience, the flow state, insight, and the quantum change. And some of the sort of descriptors that also uh, sort of describe sort of the experience, the most accurate term is actually the sense of oneness. Um, this experience of union, and of course the opposite of union is uh, the, the opposite of union is duality, so non-duality, ecstasy, bliss, absorption, merger, consummation, and rapture have all been used in 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 this field, and it is actually a bona fide field of th uh, philosophy called um, mysticism. Now it's important uh, to distinguish between um, the term spirituality and religion or religiosity. Um, so religion at its core is about faith. It's belief in something based upon unconditional acceptance of the religion's teachings. Unlike the scientific worldview, religions don't require evidence to validate their claims. Through religion, you are taught to have faith in God or the scriptures as being the infallible and ultimate truth of reality. Acceptance and surrender to the divine are taught as the path that leads to ultimate salvation. In contrast to that, uh, spirituality and the definition that I resonate with 
It doesn't dismiss faith. However, it leans more heavily on direct experience of the soul or divinity. Spiritual practices such as meditation, yoga, silence, and contemplation allow you to make conscious contact with the more expanded states of consciousness, thus helping to experientially validate the teachings rather than accepting them on faith alone. You know something because you've tasted the experience yourself and have allowed it to resonate as opposed to taking the word of another. So really, um, the fundamental difference is that religion uh, in, in, in this type of definition is belief-based, whereas spirituality is experience-based. Now, scientists have started to try and um, you know, describe the spectrum of these types of experiences in humans. Uh, because there are also um, a, a variety of other types of psychological experiences, some of which have been associated with psychotic states, for example. Um, and so this is an early paper published actually in the journal Science in 1971, in which they tried to sort of create this spectrum of behavior. So on the one um, side, we have this um, yoga and samadhi experiences that are meditation practice, but um, through the other practice where you get into some of these aberrant psychological states, um, uh, possibly through schizophrenia or other psychotic episodes, um, there's this um, sort of similarity in, in some of the symptoms that, that are experienced at the extremes of these um, uh, sort of states in which you experience the self very differently. Uh, this is another paper, also very early on in 1972, where they argued that some of these types of deep uh, transcendental experiences could actually have uh, clinical relevancy uh, and psychological benefit for uh, psychosomatic and psychological conditions. Another construct that's important to, to, to recognize is what's been called the flow state. Um, and flow is an optimal psychological state. It represents those moments when everything comes together and flow is an, it, flow occurs during an activity. So it, it happens typically for performers where it's a music performer or a sports performer. Uh, and so that's why the term performer is here. Flow is often associated with high levels of performance and a very positive experience. Flow occurs when one is totally involved at the task at hand. So it can be any type of experience. When in flow, the performer feels strong and positive, not worried about self or of failure. Flow can be defined as an experience that stands out as being better than average in some way, where the individual is totally absorbed in what she, she or he is doing, and where the experience is very rewarding and of itself, flow represents optimal experience. And there's a number of characteristics that, that occur to, to assist in, in the experience of the flow state, this sort of balance, appropriate balance between challenge and skill, um, the, the merging of action and awareness, the setting of clear goals, etc., uh, the sense of control, loss of self-consciousness, time transformation, and autotelic experience, which is really that deep state of consciousness, the intrinsically rewarding experience that flow brings to the individual, the end result of the other eight flow dimensions. So what they're really talking about is something very similar to this uh, deep mystical state of consciousness. So this cartoon reads more spiritually enlightened or less spiritually enlightened. These are third eye exams, which introduces the topic of how do we measure and how do we do research on quantifying um, these mystical states. And um, 
scientists have actually been able to uh, describe a lot of the experiences that people who have had these mystical experiences experience. So in terms of mystical types of experiences, people experience this sense of internal unity, freedom from the limitations of your personal self, and a feeling a unity or bond with was what was felt to be greater than your personal self. Experience of pure being and pure awareness beyond the world of sense impressions. Experience of oneness and relationship to an inner world within. Experience the fusion of your personal self into a larger whole. Experience of unity with ultimate reality, feeling that you experienced eternity or infinity. And there's also this, uh, in addition to internal, there's an external unity. An experience of oneness or unity with objects and or persons perceived in your surroundings. Experience of the insight that all is one. Awareness of the life or living presence in all things. And then there's a noetic quality, which really fer refers to the sense of some kind of special knowledge, insightful knowledge experienced at an intuitive level, that you're experiencing some kind of ultimate, ultimate reality, and you're able to know and see um, sort of the underlying uh, reality of life. Um, and then there's many people also experience a sort of sacredness, the sense of being at a spiritual height, a sense of reverence for this experience, uh, feeling that you experience something profoundly uh, sacred and holy. And then on a more mundane level, um, there are experiences of positive mood, experiences of amazement, uh, tenderness, gentleness, feelings of peace and tranquility, uh, experience of ecstasy, awe or awesomeness, feelings of joy. Uh, interestingly, there's also a space-time uh, distortion, a loss of your usual sense of time, a loss of your usual sense of space, uh, uh, lo loss of usual awareness of where you were, a sense of being outside of time, beyond past and future, uh, in no, no space or temporal bound boundaries, this, this experience of timelessness in, in, in the mystical state. And then another characteristic is the difficulty in describing this state. Uh, and trying to use words to describe that state, that you couldn't possibly do justice to it by using words to describe it. And in fact, in the field of mysticism, the understanding is that the only word that comes close to describing this experience is the word oneness, uh, because that encapsulates that experience uh, most deeply. So these uh, kinds of uh, experiences can actually be quantified, of course, and you can put this together into a questionnaire. And in fact, um, there is a Hood's Mysticism uh, questionnaire, which uh, has these uh, constructs built into it to try and uh, study uh, the degree to which someone has experienced a mystical state of consciousness. Now, we're also starting to move into understanding the potential neurophysiological mechanisms involved uh, in the, the, these mystical experiences. Uh, although the most fundamental questions regarding mystical experiences presently evade a reductive neuroscientific explanation, analysis of the biological correlates suggestive of underlying mechanisms of experiences are tractable. We have highlighted an intriguing overlap in neural findings on classic hallucinogens and neural findings on meditative practices that may occasion mystical experiences. More specifically, changes in activity, connectivity, and neural oscillatory processes in regions of the default mode network may underline dimensions of mystical experience, especially decreased self-referential processing and altered sense of time and space that accompany introvertive mystical experience. 
Uh, and one of the authors here is, is Griffiths, a researcher at Johns Hopkins, who's done uh, a number of studies on psilocybin and, and really expressing an interest in understanding how um, the participants in the study experience these mystical states um, with these hallucinogenic agents. And in a subsequent paper, um, they wrote that basic scientific studies using classic psychedelics have led to numerous advances in the experimental study of mystical experiences. These studies collectively suggest the possibility that the pattern and structure of communication between brain networks constitutes the neurobiological basis of consciousness, such that alterations of consciousness are driven by alterations of communication between brain regions. And I think this makes a very nice point about these deeper experiences that there's there's a tendency for all of us to say, okay, where is the the nucleus? Where is that kernel within the brain that turns on the mystical experience? Thinking that it's just a single thing. Um, but in fact, a lot of neuroscience research is really moving toward this construct of networks, of, of inter connections between different brain regions so that you develop a resonance between these different regions of the brain and that is the phenomenon that uh, generates this type of experience. Now another uh, phenomenon that is very closely associated with the mystical experience is the so-called kundalini awakening or spiritual awakening. Now this is this happens to people even though um, they have no intent to experience this. They're not doing some kind of contemplative practice in order to try and generate these experiences. These just happen to them spontaneously. And so the issue, one of the problems with this experience is that a lot of these symptoms are very similar to the symptoms of psychotic episodes. So it's extremely important to, uh, for anyone who's saying um, that I'm experiencing these types of symptoms uh, to have the diagnosis very clearly made as to whether this is potentially a psychotic episode or whether it is truly uh, a spiritual awakening. And this paper really addressed this uh, topic um, uh, with respect to um, you know, whether people are experiencing a psychotic episode or this Kundalini awakening. When a person has an altered sense of self, it becomes important to understand and be able to differentiate tendencies to schizophrenia from spiritually advancement. Although there may appear to be superficial similarities on a gross clinical level, the two differ in their intentions in subtle ways. In schizophrenia, alterations of sense of self involve weakening of the ego, leading to its derangement and loss of control over mind and senses. In spiritually advanced personalities, the ego is not deranged. Rather, by surrendering to the higher being, it undergoes a gradual merging into a higher unlimited self, ego effacement. Such a person, in fact, becomes more aware of his ego and by developing mastery over it, gains the freedom to use it or let it go. And one of the implications of this is really interesting. It may well be that one of the important things for people who experience these spontaneous Kundalini awakenings is to actually engage in a yoga practice which will allow the self-regulation necessary to make a healthful uh, experience out of this deep mystical state. Another uh, term that has been uh, developed recently for the transformation that people undergo when they have a mystical experience is the idea of quantum change. Um, and this is uh, described as a common response. And in this study, um, when in they're describing this in this paper, they said a common response when we asked people what had changed 
was everything. And again, this harkens back to that statement I said, yoga changed my life. It's this global statement. However, there were some common areas of transformation in our narratives. They often reported a sense of settled peacefulness and safety as an immediate and enduring after effect. Another major change that quantum changers reported was in their values and priorities, an abrupt and enduring shift in their most central values. They were no longer possessed by their possessions. Often, characteristics that had been valued least became most important, and those that had ranked as highest priorities fell to the bottom. Spirituality, though not necessarily religion, became central for many. So in here, there's a number of constructs that are really important. And this distinction between uh, spirituality and religion, spirituality being the experience, and that doesn't necessarily lead to be people to become uh, more religious or, or experience more religiosity. Um, and the other thing that, that is really clear here is this sort of deep transformation in values. And what I mentioned earlier of people transitioning from sort of... Um, materialistic goals in life uh, to higher goals in life. Um, and of course, this is inherently more satisfying because the, the, there's a whole raft of psychological research that has shown that people that have uh, entirely materialistic goals aimed at ac accumulating wealth or power uh, are people who don't ultimately achieve the level of happiness that, uh, that individuals who have um, less materialistic goals. This cartoon reads, out of body, back in 10 minutes. And of course, many people experience this sense of, of, of being uh, in this etheric space, out of body, uh, during these types of experiences. So now let's take a look at uh, some of the research on contemplative practices. Um, and a number of studies have, have looked at this, and uh, I've already mentioned the psychoactive drug studies, looking at these hallucinogens and seeing how they change behavior over time. Uh, looking at clinical case studies, and this is typical of the Kundalini awakenings um, uh, or the so-called spiritual awakenings, they've also been called spiritual emergencies. Um, and these are spontaneous or triggered by certain events. Um, then you can look at retrospective surveys of practitioners of contemplative practices. So you could look at long-term meditators, long-term yoga practitioners, and, and try and identify um, these changes in, in mystical state or spirituality. Um, there's real-time capture uh, with EEG or neuroimaging. Uh, so you can take someone, put them in the scanner if they're capable of en engaging in a deep state of meditation where they might experience that mystical state. Then you have captured this and you can, you can make some conclusions about where in the brain or how in the brain this is occurring. And then there's perspective studies. You can actually engage people in a practice, take naive individuals, give them uh, a contemplative practice like yoga or meditation, and then quantify uh, whether they are starting to experience changes in spirituality. Um, so this is an example of the psychoactive drug studies, and again, this is taken from Griffith's work. Um, in this particular study, uh, you can see that um, what, what they've done uh, is look at the total score on the mysticism scale, which quantifies the degree of this mystical experience. This is before taking a psilocybin. This is two months after psilocybin. You can see the total score in mysticism was high, so uh, it lasted two months past their involvement in the study where they took psilocybin. And in this study, what they did is they did the 14-month follow-up and found that that was permanently manifested, if you will. 
So these experiences, even though they're brief and artificially triggered by a hallucinogen, lead to an almost virtually a permanent change uh, in this sort of uh, metric of spirituality, if you will. Now, um, Helen Wabe, Elaine Wabe has published a review paper on um, transcendental states across meditation of contemplative traditions. And what they found in this review was that transcendent states were most consistently associated with slow breathe, slowed breathing, respiratory suspension, reduced muscle activity, and EEG alpha blocking with external stimuli, and increased EEG alpha power, EEG coherence, and functional neural connectivity. The, trans the transcendent state is described as being in a state of relaxed wakefulness in a phenomenologically different space-time. So again, they're really talking about this mystical transcendental state, uh, and studies have shown that indeed we can start quantifying um, both behaviorally as well as objectively uh, with neurophysiological measures these uh, how and where these changes are taking place. This is an interesting paper. It's actually a, a paper written by many uh, researchers in the field of meditation. Um, and talking about re their recommendations for expanding the field of contemplative science. And they address this issue of the spiritual component of these practices. They say far less research has been conducted on more challenging domains to measure, such as transpersonal and mystical, and post-conventional changes of development associated with meditation. However, these components of meditation may be crucial to people's psychological and spiritual development could represent important mediators and or mechanisms by which meditation confers benefits and could themselves be important outcomes of meditation practices. In addition, since large numbers of novices are being introduced to meditation, it is helpful to investigate experiences they may encounter that are not well understood. So the number of things in here um, that I strongly agree with, and I think this whole idea of um, the spiritual outcome is a very important outcome of long-term yoga practice. This is uh, from the same paper, and what they looked at was um, the frequency of experience on a number of items in what is the mystical, uh, mystical experience questionnaire, and these are long-term meditators. And what you can see in this is, is all of the items on this mysticism scale and all of those elements of the symptoms of the mystical state that I mentioned, uh, the positive mood states like the feeling of joy uh, on the more mundane side, but the, on the deeper side, uh, encountering the ultimate reality experience of ecstasy. The majority of people really are experiencing more of the um, the, the, the less deeper or subtle experiences, uh, the more positive mood states, for example, um, like feelings of tenderness and gentleness, feelings of peace and tranquility, whereas many fewer people are encountering these much deeper experiences, feeling that you experienced eternity or infinity, um, encounter with ultimate reality, experience of ecstasy, um, experience of pure being and pure awareness. Um, so you can see this trend that's going that 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 fewer people end up um, uh, with these deeper spiritual experiences than uh, than the positive psychological states. This is an early study that was uh, notable because it was done by Richie Davidson and Dan Goldman, who are of course leaders in the field of uh, research and contemplative practices. And this is a study they looked at in terms of looking at um, uh, long-term meditators. Uh, and what they looked at was uh, the telogen absorption scale. 
Um, and this is the measure of this sort of non-duality, this sense of uh, uh, oneness. And you can see, and they, and they grouped the, the long-term practitioners into whether they were controls, um, and these are non-meditators, uh, beginning meditators, short-term meditators, or long-term meditators. And they found essentially a dose-response curve. So the more intensively people were meditating, uh, the higher they had scores on this uh, absorption scale. And um, you know, just to give you another example of meditation research, there's a lot of these studies in meditation research, and I'm going to focus more on the yoga studies. But I'll show you this one slide here, which is looking at a questionnaire which is uh, has a spirituality component, the facet spirituality measure. And this is a mindfulness-based program for eating awareness. So it incorporates a lot of mindfulness meditation practices. And what you can see on the facet uh, spirituality uh, is in the, in the treatment group an increase in the scores on that that are maintained at the long-term follow-up, whereas the controls um, had no change over time. Now, interestingly, this study has actually combined meditation with psilocybin together and looked at a number of metrics and seen the interaction of how these things can facilitate each other. Um, so in this case, they had three conditions. They had a low dose of psilocybin uh, together with um, a, a standard support, which is uh, some degree of in, uh, instruction in contemplative practices like meditation. This was a high dose of psilocybin with standard support, and this is a high dose of psilocybin with high support. And what you can see is on these very positive uh, uh, outcomes, increased spirituality, um, was the how spiritually significant was the experience, and um, was your sense of well-being or life satisfaction improved? You can see this dose-response curve that, together with psilocybin, these meditation practices uh, can really enhance these deeper types of contemplative experiences. This cartoon reads, "Oh yeah, well my dad can reach a higher plane of consciousness than your dad." So now let's, let's turn our attention to yoga. And unfortunately, there's not a huge amount of yoga research. But interestingly, this is a paper that just was published in 2021, uh, which was a systematic review of uh, the relationship between yoga and spirituality. And they concluded that according to the quantitative and qualitative studies reviewed, yoga practice seems to be positively associated with spirituality. This association concerns various acts of, of spirituality, such as spiritual aspirations, a search for insight or wisdom, an integrative worldview, a sense of meaning and peace, faith, hope, compassion, and happiness within. To harness the potential spiritual benefits of yoga, regular practice appears to be essential. Yoga practitioners seem to have both physical and spiritual motives for practicing. At least in Western societies, however, physical intentions are more prevalent than spiritual ones. And this last sentence really does refer to sort of the reasons for practice and the types of yoga practice that exist in, in the West. And, and because a large fraction of the yoga practice is really focused on the, the, strictly the physical benefits. So let's take a look at some of the individual studies that, that have been done. And we did a study in Austin, Texas. And um, this was a study, uh, survey study, uh, in four yoga studios that were offering beginners yoga programs. And we provided a survey to these um, beginners and asked them why they were coming to yoga practice. And they were allowed to give more than one answer. And the top three answers were general wellness, physical exercise. So there's your sort of, sort of physical components, stress management, perhaps a little bit of a deeper 
reason for practice. But here it is actually in fourth place in this survey, seeking a spiritual experience. Uh, very clearly, uh, almost 40% of the participants included that as one of the reasons uh, why they were engaging in a yoga practice. So it is a measurable uh, reason uh, in, in the population of beginning yoga practitioners for uh, why they began a yoga practice. Now, a number of studies have been done in this vein. This is a study that was done by Crystal Parks Group of the University of Connecticut. And, and they looked at primary and additional reasons students and teachers reported for adopting yoga. And what you can see is that it's pretty much down the list. It's 5% of students and 7% of teachers. And that's well below um, things like flexibility and stress relief and getting exercise in terms of, um, you know, the strength of reasons for uh, engaging original reason to adopt uh, yoga practice. This is a study that was just published um, and it was done in Australia and well, it was done in on online but most of the participants were Asians and uh, they looked at the sort of the reasons and the motives for practicing yoga and they listed these in order in these charts uh, in order of um, strength so it was rated on a scale of 0 to 5 where 5 is the strongest so positive mood state, health and fitness, nimbleness were very high. And uh, on, the, on the lowest end was, you know, comp yoga is a competition or an affiliation or a supplementary activity. But here, spirituality pretty much right in the middle. This is the overall population. The red line represents females and the blue line represents males. So what's interesting is that um, the, the spirituality reason seems to be um, the same for both uh, male and female uh, practitioners beginning. What they also did was divided this population into those who believed that yoga was primarily a physical form of exercise, those that believed yoga was both physical and spiritual, and those that felt that yoga was primarily a spiritual practice. Not surprisingly, because they made these definitions, uh, those subsets had, the exercisers had low uh, scores on spirituality and for as a reason. The yogis had the highest and the postural yogis were in the middle. Uh, but what's interesting is that when you look at these, even in the yogis and in the exercisers, uh, there's really no uh, male-female difference. So that's an interesting gender finding. Um, this is a survey that was done um, by the uh, Yoga Alliance um, in connection with um, the Yoga Journal. And what they quantified here was motivations to start practicing. Uh, and here you see spiritual development well down the list. And again, the physical components like flexibility, stress relief, fitness are, are much higher. And the motivation, and here we have another a construct here, the motivation to continue practicing. Uh, it's still not very strong uh, relative to these other components which have maintained their strength. But other surveys have taken this up, this whole idea of what are reasons for continuing practice. So this is a study that was done um, uh, by a group in Australia. And what they looked here was that the beginning reason for practice uh, was uh, for a spiritual path was just about 19%. Again, very much lower than increasing health and fitness, flexibility, and stress relief. But what you can see in terms of a reason for continuing practice, it has jumped substantially from, it's almost doubled from 19% uh, to almost 43%. 
Um, and none of the other categories have made those kinds of very large increases that we see in, in, in this construct of the spiritual path being a reason. Um, this is back to work by uh, Crystal Park, a paper published in 2000. Uh, this is the, the study I showed earlier. And here they, they quantified a new primary reason to continue. And um, this is now 23.5%. And uh, if you recall from the previous slide, it was actually 5% uh, was, was a primary reason. Um, and, that's, and, and it was 50% uh, in teachers, and in the previous, it was only 7%. And additional new reasons, it, 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 it occurred into this category of additional new reasons, um, uh, also doubling, uh, almost doubling in terms of being an additional new reason to practice, to continue practicing. Uh, again, from the same paper, uh, you can see this change in the current primary reasons for practicing yoga and um, how that compares with the initial primary reasons. So 16%, uh, it's tripled from 5%. Um, and for teachers, uh, even much more so. It was only 7.1%, but 44%. And they concluded in this study that over 62% of students and 85% of teachers reported having changed their primary reason for practicing or discovering other reasons. For both, the top changed primary reason was spirituality. Findings suggest that most initiate yoga practice for exercise and stress relief, but for many, spirituality becomes their primary reason for maintaining practice. So this is really uh, a very interesting finding um, and, and very important for um, uh, for us in the field of, of promoting yoga um, uh, to really recognize this, this change and the importance of this change. Um, and this is uh, from uh, a 2019 paper by uh, Crystal Parks Group. And again, the original reason for practicing yoga, 11%, uh, and the current reasons uh, jumping up to 26%. Finally, there's a, a survey study that was done um, just recently in the UK. This is um, Tina Cartwright's group at the University of Westminster. And they looked at uh, initial reasons for practicing, which are in orange, and current reasons for practicing in blue. So what you can see, again, on the physical level here, the initial reason fitness is, is quite strong, um, and uh, health condition is quite strong, and spirituality is fairly low down the list as it is in most of these surveys as an initial reason for practicing. But now let's look at the change from the orange to the blue, which is the change in the in the uh, current principal reason for practicing. The one that has the most dramatic increase is spirituality. It is now second only to well-being, which is a related construct, uh, and outweighs a lot of these physical components, all of which to some degree have, uh, some of which at, at least, to some degree have, have been reduced um, uh, as primary reasons. And this is a study that um, also looked at the relationship between yoga involvement, mindfulness, and psychological well-being. And they looked at people who engaged, uh, that, that adopted yoga for physical reasons, and those that adopted yoga for more spiritual reasons. One of the findings they found was that their overall psychological well-being was higher in those people that began yoga with the goal of engaging more spiritually um, than those that were engaging more physically. 
And the other things they found were that practitioners had greater initial and continued physical intentions than spiritual intentions. And so that's consistent with the other surveys we've seen. However, spiritual intentions became more salient over time, suggesting that Western yoga can cultivate spirituality. Results also showed that practitioners with spiritual intentions report significantly higher psychological well-being. And this uh, 2012 survey that was conducted out of Australia looked at perceived change um, over time um, uh, from when people began their yoga practice to where they were now. And if you look at the category of spiritual health, of course, it's true for all of these um, mental health characteristics, but you can see it's really uh, skewed at much higher and much better and better uh, in terms of their spiritual health uh, after practice. This was an interesting study that um, was sort of a qualitative study uh, published some time ago. It was a study in a Kripalu Yoga ashram. It inquired about the experiences of the ashram members uh, compared to non-ashram uh, respondents. And ashram members, of course, live in this uh, yoga community. They practice yoga as a group very regularly. They live a yoga lifestyle. And the subjective effects that they posited to um, these two groups were, to what degree did they become aware of a new reality? To what degree did they experience a personality change? Uh, to what degree did they have experiences that resulted in a change in life, an experience of oneness, or feeling in touch with the divine or spiritual. And of course, you can see a lot of the elements of the mystical experience in that transformation here. And clearly, you can see that the ashram respondents in the light green here uh, really had much more uh, of these types of experiences than did the non-ashram uh, residents. So there is something clearly, um, the suggestion that um, an intensive long-term practice with yoga will yield will yield some of these deeper types of experiences. We did a survey study um, uh, on the internet and, and um, quantified uh, experiences of transcendence with hours of practice, uh, hours per week of practice, total lifetime hours of practice, and total calendar years of yoga practice. And these showed a positive correlation. All of these were positively correlated, uh, meaning that um, uh, the more people practiced yoga in all of these types of metrics, the more they had experiences of transcendence. Another example of a retrospective study is this study looking at Ashtanga yoga practitioners, and they looked at scores of self-transcendence in uh, Ashtanga yoga practitioners compared to non-practitioners and saw higher scores in self-transcendence and also higher scores in transpersonal identification and self-differentiation, this sense of altered um, sense of self. And this is a, a really nice study that was done in Germany uh, looking at long-term yoga practitioners. And what they did in this study is that they uh, quantified uh, how much the yoga practitioners were practicing. And they, did, they put them into three groups as, as to whether they were considered practicing at a high level, high intensity, at a moderate intensity, or practicing marginally. And they compared to this to a control group that did not practice yoga at all. And they used a spiritual well-being questionnaire. On the total scores of this questionnaire, what you can see is a very clear dose-response curve, that the higher levels of practice are associated with more of these experiences. And in fact, marginal practice of yoga is not any different than not practicing yoga at all with respect to the spiritual well-being in this study. 
Interestingly, they also looked at subscales of positive psychological states like hope, connectedness, and experiences of sense and meaning. And again, it's the higher level practitioners which experience the highest scores uh, on these deeper positive psychological states. And finally, this is uh, another study looking at relationships with mindfulness, kundalini, and mystical experiences. So this is a mindfulness questionnaire. This is kundalini experiences, and this is mystical experiences. And uh, the no practice group um, is here. These are the scores on, say, mis the, the mysticism scale. Um, meditation is, is higher, uh, and yoga is somewhat higher. Uh, and then they have also uh, monitored uh, prayer and, and uh, multiple practices. But looking at the Kundalini uh, awareness scale, again, these are uh, the non-yoga practitioners. And you can see that the meditators and the yoga practitioners have significantly more, a higher score on these uh, this contemplative measure. This cartoon reads, you can't handle the meaning of life. So there is some perspective uh, yoga research on contemplative states, but 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 very little. Um, this is an early study, which is interesting. This is actually a yoga meditation practice by Dasan Gusto, published in 1955. And what they did was they had an EEG running during this yoga master um, who was performing the practices. And he was able to indicate when he was experiencing this deeper samadhi state, this unit of state of consciousness, and that's panel F. And you can see that there is indeed a remarkable change in the brainwave activity. A lot of meditation research has been examining the changes in brainwave activity, but whether those changes are actually just the meditation practice or how many actually uh, develop a bona fide mystical experience is, is, is an important differentiation. But interestingly, you can see here that one of the things that, associate, that is associated with this is a slowed heart rate, which suggests the downregulation of the autonomic nervous system, which is one of the phenomena that we experience in these contemplative practices, as Herb Benson described the, the relaxation response. These are recent uh, studies conducted um, on the Deepak Chopra Center. Um, and these are at a, a retreat center in California. And what they found was that those individuals that were in a group that just came and, you know, ate the food, hung out, enjoyed the ambiance of the center, had no changes in spirituality scores. But those that were engaged in the yoga and meditation practices had quantifiable increases in scores on spirituality at the end of the intervention and one month uh, longer. And then on another school, uh, another score of uh, the unitive state, non-dual embodiment, um, you can again see that the practitioners had much higher scores that were maintained uh, at the long-term follow-up. We've also had uh, hints of this in our research. This was a study we did in the UK, and it was just a yoga study uh, in a clerical population. And one of the outcome measures we uh, looked at was life purpose and satisfaction, which is suggesting something a little bit deeper. And what you can see is uh, in this randomized control trial, we did have an increase in life purpose and satisfaction um, with no change in the control group that did not practice yoga. And it's likely due that a lot of this may be due to simple increases uh, uh, in stress and emotion regulation, which leads to uh, lower perceived stress and a better mood state. 
one of the areas that um, has really been measuring spirituality to a large degree has have been the studies looking at psychological interventions for cancer patients because of course this is a life-threatening disease uh, and so the facet um, uh, questionnaire uh, is really um, uh, looking at uh, this sense of meaning and peace, which is very important uh, for these patients uh, who may be uh, coming to the end of life. Uh, and what they found, uh, and this has been reported now in many studies, and this is just one example, um, you can see in this randomized control trial at baseline, their scores on the facet spirituality uh, scale were equivalent, but at the end of the yoga intervention, there was a statistically significant increase in scores of spirituality in the cancer patients with the yoga intervention compared with the control group. This is an interesting study um, conducted by um, the Maharishi University faculty uh, and they have now in addition to transcendental meditation developed their own asana, uh, Maharishi Yoga asana practice. And what they did was a pre-test and post-test looking at the, their yoga intervention showing that uh, transpersonal qualities and transpersonal self-measures were statistically significantly increased compared to a control group which had no change uh, from pre to post. Some time ago, I was uh, involved in a study at the Kripalu Center for Yoga and Health, which happens to be across the street from the Tanglewood Music Center. And the idea was that we could teach yoga to these young adult musicians that were in a summer program at the Tanglewood Music Institute. The idea was ultimately that we could somehow improve their musical performance because musical performance is a very subtle um, human performance and something like yoga could refine and enhance music performance. Now, the, the challenge for us was that measuring music performance is rather difficult, but the one thing we did find, and we published a number of studies on this, was that the yoga interventions that we applied were reducing music performance anxiety, which of course is very important. It's, a, it's actually critical for music performers. But what was interesting was that um, we wanted to also see if we could develop something of uh, outcomes in, the, in this whole idea of a flow state. Um, and the whole idea of a flow state is actually not uncommon uh, for music performers. And this is a, a definition of this type of experience from, from a text on this. The experience of performing can in some cases take on the qualities found in the state of archaic merger. For example, Storr noted, musicians sometimes describe feelings of being taken over or possessed during a performance, a type of ecstasy. There may be an experience of being so much at one with the music that it seems to be playing itself. This is certainly being take, taken out of oneself um, and thus has something in common with the oceanic experience. But it is qualitative differently, qualitatively different because it lacks the sense of utter tranquility that is so characteristic of the latter. Even when there is no loss of personal boundaries, performing a musical piece can entail the experience of a special state of being in which there is a sense of heightened self-cohesion, continuity, and vitality. And what you can hear in all of this text is actually a lot of overlap between what we described as the flow state, which occurs during um, a performance of some kind of activity. So we, there is actually a, uh, a flow scale called the dispositional flow scale which can be used to measure at different time points 
the experience of the flow state. So what we did uh, over a, a couple of the um, uh, years of our program in which we were studying music performance anxiety, we, have, we applied the dispositional flow scale. And what we found was that in those individuals that elected to participate in the yoga group, we had uh, statistically significant increases in the uh, scores on dispositional flow. So the yoga group is in blue, and you can see this increase in the, in the dispositional flow scale score. The control group that elected not to practice yoga uh, had no change over time. The sense of time uh, was significantly different. The autotelic experience, that deep uh, unitive state of consciousness, again, was increased in the yoga group. If anything, was decreased in the controls. And this sense of merger was also increased uh, in the yoga group. So this is actually uh, a great population to potentially work with uh, to use these contemplative practices to see if we can increase that these deeper types of uh, symptoms within uh, the flow state. Um, and this study actually also looked at flow state. Uh, it was more recent. Um, and in this pack, they, they compared um, uh, patients with metabolic syndrome, yoga practitioners, and non-yoga practitioners. And what they found was that the yoga practitioners compared to either, either the non-yoga practitioners or certainly the metabolic syndrome patients had higher scores of the flow state, suggesting that yoga practice actually enhances uh, on an ongoing basis, this experience of the flow state. So, um, a, a lot of this work with the uh, Tanglewood Music Institute was supported by uh, the Kripalu Center for Yoga and Health. Um, and Kripalu Yoga is one of those contemplative styles of yoga whose goal is to um, develop these deeper states and, and, and this interpersonal growth. I'm also supported by the Kundalini Research Institute. Uh, which supports the style of yoga I practice, which is Kundalini Yoga. And uh, Kundalini Yoga is very much uh, dedicated towards uh, the, these contemplative experiences, but experiencing them in a safe and um, uh, self-regulated manner uh, to, to elevate consciousness uh, and, and improve overall spirituality. I also serve as the uh, Director of Yoga Research for the Yoga Alliance, and my goal here is really promoting the science um, and research on yoga. Uh, and to that end, um, uh, we have uh, many uh, webinars that we've created. Uh, these are th uh, 36 webinars that we've put together. Uh, and some of them are on the topic of contemplative experiences. And there's also collections of citations. And, and one of the categories is these contemplative experiences. So some reviews on this topic and individual papers uh, are included there. Uh, and so you can see here, this is the section on transcendence and spirituality, looking at these constructs. And, and these are review papers that are cited uh, together with the links to either the abstract or the full paper and notable publications that have looked uh, at, at some of these uh, results. And I end with this cartoon. What's the meaning of life? But make it quick. I've got an important meeting in half an hour. Thanks very much for your attention, and I'm happy to address any questions. Thank you so much, Satpir. That was an incredible, uh, incredibly uh, comprehensive overview of the research and science on this very fascinating topic of transcendence and spirituality and its relationship with yoga practice. 
And uh, I know we've already got a couple of questions uh, queued up for you. And um, I wanted to actually start with a question of my own. Um, as I was uh, listening to you present this data, um, now in a number, I'm assuming that you you presented a number of different studies, uh, you know, done by different centers, different groups across different time spans um, that looked at this question of how yoga practice may correlate with uh, the the sense of uh, increased uh, spiritual, you know, identity or awareness, um, and I just wanted to know. Among those, among those studies that did find a positive correlation, um, did they all include some meditative components or were some of these studies more just limited to just um, asana and let's say breathing exercises? And uh, did, you know, was there any correlation basically between those that focus more on the physical practices versus the yoga studies that uh, included more meditative components to the, to the intervention that was being studied? No, we don't, you know, they haven't, you know, they haven't really, um, there's not enough data in these studies to be able to make that distinction. Um, and there aren't any studies that have done that within the same study, which is what you'd have to do. Um, you'd have to sort of take out the meditation in one study and and uh, take out the meditation and yoga in one group and leave it in in the other group and compare them on on their advancement to spirituality. Um, it, it's 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 likely that that's going to show up that that the styles that incorporate meditation are going to be uh, more uh, conducive to this. We already know to some degree that these more traditional forms of yoga that incorporate pranayama, relaxation, and meditation are starting to show to have stronger um, clinical outcomes. So for example, in a meta-analysis of yoga for hypertension, that was one of the findings. Mm -hmm. So it's not going to be surprising that we're going to see that that is correlated with the improvement in spirituality. Because one of the things that limits your spiritual experience, of course, is having a disorder of some kind. Mm -hmm. If you're experiencing anxiety, if you're experiencing stress, for that matter, if you're experiencing low back pain, how can you be experiencing spirituality? It's These are impediments, if you will, to the experience of this spiritual state. And in fact, if you look at the yoga literature, that's what that's what yoga is all about. Yoga is about perfecting the functioning of the body and the mind um, to eliminate the impediments to this deeper experience. So what you're really doing is you're setting yourself up through yoga practice to have a greater likelihood of having this wonderful spontaneous experience happen to you. Now, in many ways, there's an enormous parallel between that and how you fall asleep. Because what you do when you go to sleep is you set the conditions for sleep. You go to bed at the end of the day, not in the middle of the day. You, close, you turn off the light. You get warm. You make sure it's silent. And you close your eyes. And you lie down. That, then sleep, happens to you. Now, if you so in that sense, it's it's the same as the mystical experience. In yoga, you perfect the body, you alter, you optimize your mental health functioning, you optimize your physiological and, and physical functioning, and then through these practices, 
you are now optimizing the odds that that network activity or whatever it is that is is underlying this experience manifests. And um, it, just like sleep, if you try to do it, it won't happen. <laughs> so if you try to fall asleep, you'll actually keep yourself awake. So 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 there's a lot of parallels here between um, you know this this whole idea of optimizing uh, functioning, and that's what yoga is. Yoga is essentially a form of practical mysticism because you're basically preparing your body and mind for ultimately going into that kind of deeper experience. All right. Thank you so much. Really great answer and uh, interesting analogy with sleep. <laughs> um, so a few questions have uh, come in now. I'm just going to go through them. Um, one, um, one person asks, uh, how is a higher level yoga practitioners, uh, yoga practitioner defined? I guess in one of the slides that you had presented, you had made a right. distinction between a higher level yoga practitioner versus not. Yeah. So, I mean, this is arbitrary. There's, there's no Bible, there's no Bible. There's no dictionary that you can go to and say, this is a high level practitioner. You make this up. Uh, so you look at the data. And one thing you can do with the data is you can see if these people are clustered into three different categories. Then it's easy because then you can make the boundaries of those clusters. But if it's just a continuous line that, you know, there's no, there's, there, there's no clustering into different groups, then you just put cutoff points. You say that people that are practicing less than so many hours per week, are in this category, people that are practicing in a middle number of uh, hours per week are in this middle category, and people that are practicing in this higher level of hours and above this category are in that third group. Um, and, and then you do the statistics. So, so it is somewhat arbitrary. There's no holy distinction between a high-level practitioner and a low-level practitioner. It's just defined by the study uh, parameters. Okay, so you didn't find like two peaks or three peaks in terms well, of... Well, you'd have to look at their data. I mean, all they presented was those three categories in the German study, right. which is the one that, that, that really did that the most. Um, and and uh, that's what they saw. They saw the dose response curve, which is, which is nice. Mm -hmm. uh, a second question. Uh, the study looking at breast cancer patients in yoga, uh, did those patients have a range of disease severity? Uh, were they all terminal? So there's many studies that have been done with yoga. Actually, it's one of the biggest air, one of the biggest growing areas of research in yoga uh, as a therapy. Uh, that's in cancer patients, and the reason is that it addresses issues that modern medicine doesn't address well. It addresses stress. It addresses emotion regulation. It addresses a lot of the symptoms of of the treatments, the conventional treatments for cancer, like the chemotherapy and the radiation therapy and the surgery. Um, and uh, it also addresses these deeper issues of life purpose and meaning. Um, and there's no, there's no drug you can take to improve your life purpose and meaning. So, so that's why there's been a, a lot of studies on yoga for cancer patients. In fact, it's now being recommended by leading cancer organizations as a potential treatment for cancer patients. So there are studies that have used the facet spirituality questionnaire uh, on all kinds of populations, cancer survivors, cancer patients, different types of cancer, uh, different stages of cancer. So it, it's, it's highly varied. 
Um, but what is clear is that, that many of these studies are really showing significant improvements in this FACET SP uh, questionnaire. Great, thank you. Uh, another question. Uh, is there a yoga teacher you would recommend to someone who wants to develop a meditative practice? So I wouldn't say a yoga teacher per se. I would, I would lean towards uh, a yoga style. Now, you choose a style based upon what your interests are. So if your interests are spiritual, and you want to engage in a yoga practice because you want to develop this deeper spirituality, you probably would want to avoid a yoga style which is heavily focused on asanas or entirely asanas. Because the likelihood of you making the changes necessary for those kinds of deeper psychological changes are less likely. Now, everything's statistical, so I could be wrong. Someone can engage in a, an entirely physical practice of yoga and have a great Kundalini awakening body. You know, it, it happens. But the likelihood, what we're talking about is the likelihood. So the likelihood of your having deeper spiritual experiences are greater if you adopt the style of yoga, which is really focused more on these spiritual types of practices, the meditative component, the meditative practices, uh, and even the philosophical engagement, um, that's going to generate more likelihood. And and it's easy to quantify that. Um, you know, you can go on the internet, and and you know, there's internet sites that actually compare yoga styles, and they'll say, oh, this style is really focused on breathing. This style is really focused on on physical postures. This is a real contemplative, spiritual type practice, um, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So um, that's that's the only thing you can really um, recommend with confidence. Individual teachers, uh, they vary. I mean, they vary within within traditions. Uh, so uh, you know, and and different people resonate with different teachers. <laughs> you know, some teachers. Uh, students will say, I hate that teacher, and, and other students in the same class say that that teacher is fantastic. So it, it's, it's personal preference and what resonates with you. And the only way to find that is to do your homework and search for the style of yoga that, that fits what you want to do, and then go through several teachers to find which teacher resonates for you. Because all of that is going to enhance your engagement and going to enhance your experience and the likelihood that you you will have some of these deeper um, changes, uh, positive changes occur. Yeah, that really harkens back to your analogy about sleep and uh, and mystical experiences with yoga. So that if you are um, practicing, you know, a style of yoga that sets the stage, that sets the frame for those kind of um, introspective experiences. Than and because life. these are psychological experiences, you really want to focus on those aspects of yoga practice which really work on the psychological level, and meditation is very important there. Yes. Another question here. Um, was the study of yoga philosophy and sacred texts considered as yoga practice in any of these studies? And if so, are there any data about how it contributes to positive personal change? I think there have been a couple of studies that have looked at yoga plus um, philosophical readings compared to just the yoga. 
I don't think there was statistically significant changes, but there the absolute scores were a little higher on on those that included the you know the philosophy and so on. Most of the yoga research studies <clears throat> have not delved into the philosophy deeply. Most of the interventions really focus on what people get in yoga classes typically, which is the asanas, the pranayama, relaxation, and meditation. Um, and there's no studies that I'm aware of that just uh, have looked at the, the, the philosophy of yoga and seeing if the philosophy of yoga can, I, I may be wrong, but uh, I, I'm, I'm not aware of any studies that have tried to quantify improvements just by talking about the philosophy. So it sounds, just to just recap what you were uh, responding to with my first question, so it sounds like most of these yoga studies, which were demonstrating some association between yoga practice and, and spiritual experiences, um, you're saying that we don't have the data to know what, uh, like, we don't even have the data in those studies to actually know whether meditative components were even included, or just that we don't have the data to separate out the ones that had meditative components from the non-meditative components. Yeah, I would say that most of the yoga studies have done traditional yoga incorporating meditative components. Okay. There are very few yoga research studies that are just asanas. Most scientists who are doing the research on yoga are themselves yoga practitioners. And they understand, as all academics and scholars do, that yoga practice is this multi-component, um, you know, deeper practice that incorporates these other components. And so the interventions that we see in most yoga research studies usually uh, all have, uh, uh, you know, these meditative components. There may be styles that have been used that maybe have more of an emphasis on postures or more of an emphasis on breathing, but uh, most of the studies really are traditional yoga. And again, they haven't teased them apart, uh, so-called dismantling studies, where you try and say uh, how much of the benefit was due to the postures, how much was due to the um, you know, the meditation, et cetera. Um, you know, there's just a, you know, we were talking before the talk started about that conference that we both attended in 2018 and uh, Manoj Basin and his group, they did a very interesting um, study looking at epigenomic profiles um, among yoga practitioners. And they were actually able to find different pathways that were actually um, uh, different, that di differentiated uh, the those that practice a mainly contemplative yoga versus a much more physically based uh, asana practice. And uh, this was something that was uh, very uh, fascinating to me because they were able to, I think, explicate that in both cases, it led to a relaxation response, but through mm -hmm. very different pathways, but they got to the same goal, um, mm -hmm. but through a, a different bio, you know, biological route. Um, so there may still be some convergence at the same time that there are also some differences perhaps in what it might do at a psychological level. One more, a couple more, uh, uh questions that came in, uh, do you have any thoughts on combining, uh, yoga asanas and pranayama with a Buddhist meditation practice? I'm assuming they're considering a Vipassana practice here when they're saying Buddhist meditative practice. So, you know, we know so little about how these practices work and which specific practices are the best and so on and so forth. 
And, and so the safest bet is that these things have been developed over millennia. Um, and these traditions um, have their own sets of practices and their whole sets of training and their whole sets of how they do the practices. And I believe that there's value in, in that because these, these, these practitioners have, have, have adopted these practices through trial and error, essentially over centuries of practice. And so I think it's important to maintain, if you want the best results, it's important to maintain the integrity of a lineage of practice and respect the way that practice is done. Uh, if you really want to have, I think, the best outcome. Um, for us, I think it's the height of hubris to say, well, I'm going to take this technique from that style and that technique from that style because when I look at the results, I think that these things match together very well and will be optimum. So I'm going to put these things together and that's what I'm going to do. Well, you know, you're not an expert. How do you know those things are going to match? How do you know that those things are incompatible and could actually make things worse for you? So you're playing with fire to some degree when you engage in those kinds of mix and match of, you know, I'm going to combine this with that and see if this works and all of that. I, I think I think I'm a traditionalist, so I think you're safer off following a single lineage and developing deeply into that lineage uh, and following the traditions that have been established over centuries. Um, because there's a there's a bona fide reason why those those strategies and those limits and those behaviors and those specific practices are there. Um, great answer. Um, it actually harkens back to um, a talk I heard by Houston Smith um, um, before he passed away recently, but he was giving talks uh, right up until his last few years, and uh, he said that. Um, those of us in America, we like to practice cafeteria style spirituality. <laughs> uh, we do like to do that mix and match approach. And yeah. he was a big advocate actually for um, staying with a particular tradition and really following it through, you know, to its fullest extent to really reap spiritual benefits. Um, and I think uh, resonates very much with what you were saying about those practices develop for a reason over time within a particular cultural context. And yeah. Um, yeah they might offer uh, the best chances for, for uh, spiritual experience there. Uh, and then uh, last question, I saved the last for the best for last for you, except <laughs> here. Uh, this uh, audience member asks, could you please expand on your own experience as a practitioner of Kundalini Yoga? So my, admittedly, my first experience, which drew me to yoga was, um, a substance experience, if you will. I was uh, a child of the late 60s and early 70s, and I was doing what everyone else was doing at that time and exploring. And um, that exploration into the substances led me to an experience, and that experience then led me to yoga. Um, the experience I had was this bona fide mystical state uh, and it had the profundity that I described in my talk. And it was life-changing. And so I wanted to follow through on that um, with a contemplative practice that would take me into that direction. And um, 
the way I ended up in Kundalini Yoga is somewhat, you know, out of the blue in a way. I mean, I was I was a, I was an undergraduate student at the University of Toronto, and I had made this decision that, and I did a bunch of reading. Uh, on mysticism and on contemplative states and on uh, contemplative practices and 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 really read up on all of this. So I did my shopping. Um, when I read a book on yoga, it said the advantage in yoga is that everything in a yoga lifestyle is directed towards your achievement of that experience. Your breathing, your body, your mind, your breath, your diet. The people around you, everything is is self-regulated to optimize the odds of having that experience. And that's the advantage of that over meditation alone, because meditation doesn't have the breathing. It doesn't have the body. It doesn't have the diet. It doesn't have all that kind of stuff. And that made enormous sense to me. So I had resolved that I was going to do a yoga class. And my only strategy was, well, I'm going to go to the Yellow Pages. For those of you that don't know what yellow pages are, this was a book with yellow pages that you would go and you'd look under Y for yoga and then you'd see yoga studios. So I was on the verge of doing that. And I happened to be walking into one of the lounges at the university and some of the students were talking about yoga class for credit on campus. A course was developed with yoga as the practice. And so I said, okay, that fits. Uh, and it was a Kundalini Yoga teacher, and I, uh, that, was, that was it. That was the beginning, and, and that's what brought me to the lifestyle. And, and the lifestyle has nurtured me in deep ways and, and has satisfied that deep, deep longing for that activity in that direction. And just as a follow-up question, just something that came to mind as you were speaking, Satbir, is um, what was it that that led you to uh, look for a contemplative practice rather than simply trying another use of that same substance uh, over time. To oh, well, that's an interesting effect. story too. Um, so, so a lot of people, when they have this transition, there will be a book that they read that is transformative. And as I said, I did a lot of reading. So I was reading books by Alan Watts and, and, and other writers who were talking about this. I read books on mysticism. And I read a book called The Master Game, and it was written by a biochemist. And being scientifically inclined, I was I was very interested in this. Uh, and he talked about these mystical experiences, and he talked about this path in life, which is essentially the master game. The goal of the master game is to experience the spiritual state of consciousness. And he addressed the whole issue of using substances. And what he said was that these substances artificially generate that state. And what he believed, and I believe a lot of people have expressed this, is that when you artificially trigger those states in your central nervous system, you actually deplete the capability of your nervous system to generate these naturally. Hmm. And that is, and in addition to the risk of becoming a substance abuser, that to me was like, whoa, you mean if I continue these substances, I may not be able to achieve this meditatively or through contemplative practices. And that's a non-starter. Um, and and the, the natural way, if you will, is the better way. 
Um, so uh, that to me is, is a strong reason why um, people should in, engage in contemplative practices where you put in the time, you put in the effort, uh, and then you achieve the goal. The, the quick fix pill idea has never resonated with me. And it, it actually doesn't resonate with me in modern medicine either. Um, preventive medicine, holistic medicine, uh, behavioral medicine, these are the strategies we need to have as first-line treatments. And the quick fixes can be if those fail. That's true for insomnia. It's true for non-communicable diseases. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you so much, Sukhbir. This has just been a fascinating conversation and um, incredible presentation that you had done earlier to this uh, dialogue. So um, we will bring things to a close on that note today. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.